Great. I want to welcome all the people uh, joining us via Zoom from their homes, uh, from the lounge, and also from Hope Tikipanga and Hope Onorahi. It's great to have you all with us this morning. Lord, I just pray that as we uh, look again at the book of Philemon, that you might speak to us uh, through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul's short letter to Philemon, pleading with him to welcome back his runaway slave Onesimus, gives us a, a snapshot of how the gospel speaks to what was a specific, serious pastoral issue. Paul applies the radically different understanding of our relationship with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ and partners in the gospel to the relationship between a slave owner and a slave. Calling for the grace and peace he had given in his blessing at the start of this letter to manifest itself between them. And commentator Scott McKnight says this is an important example of how Pauline circles sought to embody a new vision for humanity. A new vision called the church. A place where there was neither male nor female, slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile, Greek nor barbarian. In Christ we are one. And last week we explored Philemon and what it had to say to us about the way of love when it comes to dealing with broken relationships between people. We looked at it from a pastoral level. However, it's impossible for modern readers to look at this epistle and not have some questions to ask about the bigger issue of the relationship between the gospel and slavery itself. It seems the early church was able to formulate an understanding of equality without calling for the abolition of the underlying social injustice and evil of slavery. Now, there's no evidence that Paul actively sought for Onesimus to be emancipated. And having confidence that Philemon will do even more than Paul asks, some commentators suggest that he left freedom's door ajar in the hope that Philemon would walk through it. And we don't know what he would have ordered uh, Philemon to do if Paul had used his apostolic authority. And whether Philemon set Onesimus free falls outside uh, the frame of the snapshot the epistle gives us. Because remember, it's a story without a beginning or an end. We've just sort of come into the middle, right at that important juncture. And you know, historically, the book of Philemon has been used in debates around Christian attitudes to slavery. And it's been used on both sides of the debate. In the 4th century, John Chrysostom used it as a polemic against radical Christian groups who believed that the Christian faith meant that slavery should be abolished in the Roman Empire. In the 18th century, it was used on both sides of the debate in the U.S., and in the 1850s, it was quoted by some to support a law to return runaway slaves across state lines was also quoted by abolitionists. In preparing for this message, I read a book called Onesimus is My Brother, which was quite hard reading, because it was written by American, African-American theologians reflecting on this story, this book, from their own history. And the book came out of the editor being asked the question in a Bible study in their church. 
One of the people there said, I wonder what would have happened if this was a black slave being returned to a southern white slave owner. Brought it right back home to their place and their understanding of uh, what had happened to their, uh, to their forebears. And of course the sad truth is that Christian Europe and North America did not deal with the issue of slavery until into the 18th and 19th century. They benefited and flourished economically from slavery. In the Western world, it's tied to racism. How one group could see another as subhuman enough to simply be considered property, to own, buy and sell. Slavery is also not a thing of the past, but it's a growing modern phenomenon. The United Nations estimates there's about 21 million people uh, in slavery today. And some non-profit organisations working in that area place it at 35 million. About a quarter are forced into the sex industry. About 40% are under 18. 46% male and 56% women. And 67% are in the Asia-Pacific region. And the profits from slavery are staggering. I mean, you can imagine agriculture and fishing and manufacture without the labour costs. And slavery in the sex industry is said to make over $100 billion a year. And slavery is pervasive. When companies seek for the least cost they can for goods in a globalised labour market. And many countries now call large international brands to guarantee that there's no slave or sweated labour in their supply chain. And while not technically slavery, the exploitation of migrant workers and exploitative practices in some industries in New Zealand show we need to be on guard even in our own country. Well, the first thing we need to say is that the early church did live in a slave society. And they may not have had the same sensitivity that we have to it today. Because, you see, Roman society was a slave society. Paul can say neither slave nor free in Christ because that was one of the great social divides of his day. You were either free or a slave. Slavery actually permeates the whole biblical narrative as well. Um, I have got back into reading the scriptures uh, through every year, and it's January, and so I'm reading through Genesis, and because I was working on the sermon, I, I, as I was reading, I became very much aware of slavery. Abraham was a slave owner. When he received God's call in Genesis 12, it says he left with his wife and family all his property, and in verse 3, the people he had acquired in Haran. When Sarah is unable to give him a child, she gives her Egyptian slave girl, Hagar, to Abraham so she might give him a child. And later Sarai, after she has her own child, mistreats her and she flees. But God appears to Hagar in the desert and uh, she calls God the God who sees me, which is quite profound. That person has no status in society, but God sees them. It's the story of Jacob. And again, slave girls are given to Jacob to have children in a kind of competition between Rebecca and Leah. Now, they end up being um, uh, Jacob's wives, but uh, that's still the origin of that. 
Joseph is stolen into slavery by his brothers as a lesser evil to killing him. And while Joseph says that God used that evil for good, it still says that such enslaving is wrong. And even amongst all this slave talk uh, in, in Scripture, we can see that God is still able to do the things that he is wanting to do. It's interesting that in New Zealand history, God used a slave for the furthering of the gospel amongst Maori tribes. You're probably familiar with the, the, the story of Tarori and her St. Luke's gospel. People are familiar with that story. Uh, Tarori is the daughter of a chief. She's uh, sent to school to learn to uh, read. On her way home, uh, one time she's killed by a member of Tiawa tribe, and her most valuable possession, a copy of the Gospel of St. Luke's and Tario that she kept in a kitty around her neck is taken. Now at her funeral, her father Nakuku, a Christian, preaches forgiveness, not revenge. Meanwhile, her Bible remains unread until a slave who can read by the name of Ripahau comes along and as he reads the Gospel to Uita, and I apologise if I've got that one wrong, the chief's chief responsible for the death of Tarori, well, as he reads the gospel, Uita's heart is changed and he becomes a follower of Christ and knows that he must take the risky step of asking for forgiveness. It's a Philemon and Onesimus moment, which he does. And there is peace and reconciliation between the tribes. And Ripahau later would read the scriptures to other tribes and chiefs and was instrumental in the spread of the gospel. As missionaries came, they found the gospel had already gone before them and refreshed people's hearts to use a line from Philemon. And you know, we could go on and on and do a biblical survey looking uh, at slavery, looking at the people of Israel being oppressed in Egypt after they'd been treated well and, and the impact that it has on them. We could talk of how after the exile, the idea of being redeemed uh, was that wealthy kin would buy back people who for reasons of poverty had sold themselves or been sold into slavery. And the call of the prophets to deal with the underlying problem of poverty so that they wouldn't have to resort to such dramatic solutions. And we can forget that a lot of Jesus' parables about servants were not about people in the hospitality industry, but slaves in people's households or royal courts. But the gospel does have an impact. It was for free and slave. And as we see from this glimpse we have in Philemon, Paul sees that as we come to faith in Jesus Christ, our relationship with one another fundamentally changes. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, our community with each other is founded solely on what Christ has done for us. Not on social status. Not on the social divides of the time. And Paul invites Philemon to see Onesimus no longer as a slave with no status, no longer as useless and a runaway, but as a fellow man, as a brother in Christ, no longer useless but useful as a partner in the gospel. That's the transformation of the gospel. In a letter to the church at Corinth, this understanding of the family and the household of God has other practical applications. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul talks of people going ahead at Christian gatherings and eating and having their full, and those who come late miss out and go away hungry. 
Well, those who came late were most probably slaves who couldn't come till they'd finished all their master's work. Paul says in the Christian community, you wait for those who wait on you so that you may eat together as equals in Christ. In 2 Corinthians, Paul encourages slaves not to be upset with their position. He's concerned about revolt, but also to get free when they can. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul turns the Roman household code on its head by not making it a means of keeping people in their place, which sadly, you know, some Christians have seen it. You know the Roman household code? Husband, wife, children, and they stop there. But in scripture, in in the Roman household code, slaves. That was how the Roman emperor said, you keep order. I keep order in society, which means you keep order in your household. But that's not the Christian way of doing things. Paul turns that on his head and talks about it being loving service in Christ about loving one another, submitting to one another. It totally changes and turns that on its head. It flips it. In 1 Timothy 1.11, Paul lists slave trading in a list of things that are morally wrong. Slaves in Roman society were usually either the offspring of slaves um, or captured in warfare. But slave traders were people who would kidnap others and then sell them as slaves. And this was seen as immoral and wrong. That practice, by the way, was the basis of the slave trade from Africa and blackbirding in the Pacific. I have Tokelauan friends who talk about the pain that was uh, talked about in their families because blackbirders would come and steal their children and take them away. Um, and it was also the basis for uh, modern, ta- modern slavery and slave trade being denounced. It's the basis, sadly, for a lot of modern-day slavery as well. And the question needs to be asked, why didn't this new way of being together automatically result in a movement to oppose slavery? Why did Christian slaves remain so? Why were Christians on both sides of the abolition debate? In the US, you know, the Bible Belt and the old slave states virtually coincide we apply the gospel and being the church as a place of hope and change in our world today they are some of the big questions i don't know if we've got time to deal with them all in depth today but here are some thoughts firstly it's easy to find ourselves immersed in our culture and society rather than scripture and its implications we like those in the first century find ourselves with cultural blind spots. It's easy for us to be products of our society and time. You know, it's as simple as that. We can become settled and comfortable in the place where we are and forget Jesus' call to come and follow him and the fact that that changes everything. I mean, for example, Jesus warns about the danger of wealth and comfort uh, when he says that you can't serve God and mammon. And you know in our world today, in the West, Christians are trying to be in that impossible place of doing both. That's why in the Old Testament, God continually sends the prophets to critique what's going on 
and call the people back to God's way. That's why God raises up um, those sorts of people within the church as well. I mean, historically, you have to look at people like St. Francis of Assisi, of John Wesley. You know, Wesley's revival gave the spiritual vitality needed to underpin the movement for the abolition of slavery and so many other social reforms like universal free education. The evangelicals wanted that so that children could learn to read so they could read the Bible for themselves. Uh, the SPCA, you know, uh, caring for animals. That came out of that whole spiritual revival. And in our own time, um, things like the new monastic movement, uh, people who choose a radical path, and they invite us to reevaluate ourselves by confronting us with the uncomfortable demands and the call of the gospel to move us back towards Christ. Well, the second thing is that one of the voices we don't hear in the book of Philemon is Onesimus. Paul speaks for him as an advocate, which is important. But we don't know what Onesimus had told Paul about his life as a slave. We don't know the process of forgiveness and being healed that he had got to go through, his pain and his suffering, uh, coming to realize that in Christ he had real worth, not just as property. We don't hear his story or his voice. And if we are to see each other as beloved brothers and sisters, then we need to hear the voices of people who are impacted the most by things like slavery and poverty and oppression and abuse. We need to hear sometimes those uncomfortable voices. We need to hear and then to look at the scriptures and ask the difficult questions, even to wrestle with that age-old question in the wisdom literature. How long, O oh God, how long will you allow the suffering to go on? Have you abandoned us? But also, when they speak, we need to hear the gospel ring true again of the possibility of transformation and new creation in Christ. St. Patrick was an ardent anti-slave voice in Ireland. When Ireland became Christianized, Ireland abandoned slavery. And that was because Patrick himself had been a slave. He had been taken in a raid and had spent many years as a slave. In fact, when he went back to Ireland, the person that owned him committed suicide because he couldn't comprehend of St. Patrick coming back without wanting revenge. But he came back with a, gospel, with a gospel message of reconciliation, a Philemon kind of uh, gospel. Scott McKnight says that it's not until after the revolution in Haiti amongst black slaves demanding freedom that the abolition movement took off in the US. They heard those voices. In England, when former slave Uleda Equano wrote his biography and outlined the abuses and violence and evil he had experienced in, in, the, in the slave trade that it resulted in a petition going to Parliament to stop the slave trade. And you know, it's why the trusted voices of people like Martin Luther King Jr. and uh, the late Desmond Tutu are so powerful and important. And it's the power of the voices in the women's movement as well. And those we hear in the Me Too movement challenging sexual harassment and the abuse of power. They're uncomfortable voices, but we need to hear them. 
Lastly, Philemon is just a quick snapshot into both a personal pastoral issue and a larger social injustice. And it shows us the challenge of living out our Christian faith and being reconciled with one another in a very messy, fallen and broken world. And at the moment, you know, COVID is certainly throwing up some of those messy issues which challenge us. Well, Philemon doesn't provide us with an overarching solution or even all the answers to our questions. One of the things it does is that it brings theology down to a personal situation and people taking a personal step, people taking one step forward. The way to change is being prepared to take that step forward. And you know, we don't know what impact Paul's letter had on Philemon as a church leader and a slave owner and a household head. It may have been radical. He may have been willing to not only forgive and welcome Onesimus, but free him. And maybe his household was radically changed. It's out of the picture we have. It's arguing from silence. But how the gospel relates to slavery and to other injustice of the world comes down to that personal step leaving the door ajar so we can walk through it, allowing our worldview and actions to be shaped and challenged and changed by the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and prepared to make a step towards being people of hope and bringing change in the world. As I mentioned last week, my mother's family name was Sharp. Uh, and she's told us that one of her ancestors was Granville Sharp, who was known as the um, father of the abolition for the movement for the abolition of slavery in England. And we always used to say, oh, yeah, sure, Mum. <laughs> and then we saw this picture of uh, Granville Sharp and we saw his nose and we thought, yep, <laughs> there's the family resemblance. Not, I don't have my mum's nose. <laughs> Praise God. <laughs> um, you know, and as I said last, last week, his journey started one day in the streets of London, a very good Samaritan kind of parable moment. He was a simple shipping clerk, and he came upon a runaway slave by the name of Jonathan Strong, who had been beaten and left for dead. And Granville Sharp took him to see his brother, uh, who just happened to be the royal physician, uh, and, got a, and Jonathan Strong got the best of hospital and medical care and was restored to health, and uh, Granville Sharp helped him to get a start in London. But one day his previous owners saw him and they had him arrested and they were going to ship him back to the Caribbean to work in their plantations. And Granville Sharp paid a lawyer to defend him in court, arguing that under English law you could not own another person. Well, he failed in that and Jonathan Strong was deported. Um, and, uh, but that didn't stop him. In actual fact, Grenville Sharp then went on to teach himself the law, and uh, he went on to fight several other important legal cases. He lost and he lost till he succeeded, and it was said that the law lords used to quake at the sight of the simple clerk coming into their courtrooms, because of the rightness and justice of his cause. And eventually he managed to get it in English law that you could not own another person. 
as faith and gospel understanding of people as fellow humans and brothers and sisters in Christ made a difference as he was prepared to just take personal steps. In the world today, when we face large issues like um, the whole environment problem, challenge climate change, all those sorts of things, uh, injustice, inequality, um, they talk about, think, uh, about being global, thinking globally about these issues, but in actual fact, acting locally, taking one step at a time, one step to be agents of hope and change. Well, how does the gospel relate to slavery and other injustice in the world today? Can I say it's an unfinished story? The open-ended nature of Philemon invites us to take a step into that story and to write it with our own lives on a personal and a societal level. Amen.